Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to this episode of the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and I'm here in the studio with today's guest. She's the CEO of IASME Consortium, a company based just up the road at the Witch Innovation Centre in West Melbourne, which focuses on information assurance for small companies and the supply chain. They worked with the UK government to develop the Cyber Essentials Scheme and were awarded the contract to be the sole NCSC Cyber Essentials Partner from April 2020. It's a mouthful. <laughs> she has MBE after her name, which I look forward to hearing more about, and is also founder and manager of the UK Cyber Security Forum. She is Dr. Emma Philpot, MBE. How are you doing, Emma? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. Good. Thank you very much for coming in, first of all. Oh, you're welcome. Because you're, uh, you're leading an ever-growing team of people, by the yes. sounds of it. <laughs> so you're pretty busy. Yes. Um, <laughs> since um, getting the contract to be the Cyber Essentials Partner, yeah. which was April 2020, we have grown a lot as a company, mm-hmm. um, which is which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So it's been great. It's been a bit crazy, but yeah, really good. Cool, cool. Okay, and uh, yeah, the company's IASME, which is I-A-S-M-E, and you're at iasme.co.uk if yes. people want to go and find out more about what you do. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and get some help with all the cybersecurity stuff. Cool. Okay, so we had uh, your husband Adrian on a few weeks ago. Um, so tell us about, about you. Where did you grow up? We, are, are you from this area originally? Um, so my parents uh, travelled the world when I was very little. So right. my dad used to work for uh, international development in the government, um, developing new kinds of cow. Cow. So yeah. Okay. So, so he worked with lots of different veterinary schools across the world. So right. um, I was actually born in Kenya, oh, and right. I spent quite a few years living in Nigeria oh, wow. um, and Australia. So yeah, it was. It, I was just used to being dragged. Me and my sisters dragged around the world. But it was, you know, obviously it was great. It was a good start. We came to live in in Worcestershire mm-hmm. when I was about nine, and okay. then lived in sort of Great Whitley and Worcester. Um, then I went to the girls' grammar school, which of course then became the sixth form college. Mm-hmm. Before I went away to university. So, okay. Yeah. Right. So, was it kind of strange coming back to the UK if you'd grown up in, you know, elsewhere? And I guess that was normal to you, Kenya, and everything was kind of the norm. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was a bit of a shock, actually. In fact, it was very unfortunate because we came back to start with to live near Edinburgh. Right. And we, as young, very young kids, so we were about, I don't know six or seven were saying things like oh it's lovely to come back to England you know oh no (laughs) no. that didn't go down very well in Scotland (laughs) so and I I also remember finding it very 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 cold yeah after being in Africa um but yeah it was it was great you know exciting time really yeah yeah and um did your dad develop a lot of new cows? <laughs> um, I think he did, actually. Um, he was working... It was what came before genetic engineering, before there right. was genetic engineering. Right, okay. So they would just breed different kinds of cow together um, to try and get cows that were um, as good as the ones in, like, this country, mm-hmm. but didn't die of tropical diseases. Mm-hmm. Okay, right, yeah, yeah. Cool. That's an interesting 
interesting job yeah <laughs> cool and uh, how about your mum was she working or looking after you guys uh so no she would she's a doctor so right. she would be just the local gp wherever we were uh, okay so there's um there's bizarre pictures of her just sort of um sitting in the back of a land rover with tribes people a queue of tribes people going off into the distance <laughs> waiting to see her and you know when you look at that picture you wouldn't guess that she was the doctor right okay because she was a sort of a very young looking white woman mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah she treated people um in everywhere we went she worked as right. a doctor when we came back here she was a pediatrician so she right, was okay. um the school doctor of the schools that we went to which mm-hmm. obviously wasn't wasn't always ideal for us when we were growing up <laughs> but yeah it worked out quite well yeah yeah okay cool cool um and then you went off to uni where was that uh so i went to cambridge i went oh, okay. to st Catharines college at cambridge, oh cool and that's where i met adrian because mm-hmm. he was at churchill um, i did material science mm-hmm. well i actually wanted to do physics to start right. with okay. but once i got to university maths and physics just became too difficult (laughs) (laughs) so um i ended up doing material science which you know i loved yeah um and i think you'll find that quite a lot of material scientists are people who didn't know about material science started off wanting to do something like physics and Mm -hmm. then moved into that area so yeah i ended up doing material science specializing in material science and then um got a job on the management scheme with the ministry of defense okay okay as um michael newnham at uh over at the Witch Innovation Centre. He's a material scientist, doesn't he, I think, um, as well? Yes, I think so. <laughs> There's lots of material There's scientists a few around. around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean about the maths and physics. I think when I went to uni, I started doing, um, what do they call it? Mathematical engineering or something, which was like mechanical engineering, but with some extra maths modules. And yeah. I was just like, what's yeah. going on too abstract yeah i think it was in the second year when we were calculating the doppler, doppler shift of an electron right that i just thought enough you know, i'm not going this is not for me um, until then i was yeah i wanted to do physics but you so you were always in school and stuff you were kind of focused on the physics and maths and that sort of thing was that yeah. your that was your thing well it was kind of my thing in that I liked it when exciting things happened, you know, mm-hmm. so chemistry and physics, you get explosions and mm-hmm. color changes and lights coming on. That's, you know, I loved that. Yeah. But also a big factor, you know, I confess, was science homework took much less time. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm slightly dyslexic. Right, so okay. English homework and things like geography took yeah, me ages. Yeah, right. And I always got marked down because I couldn't spell and, you know, it was an effort for me. Mm. Whereas when I did maths and physics and chemistry, even though I was messy and I couldn't spell, I was still able to, you know, complete mm. the homework. And okay. so that's, I ended up doing it because of, partly because of that. Right, okay. But also it always pleased me that there was an answer. You know, it yeah. wasn't up to someone's judgment about <laughs> yeah. whether it was a, like a good essay or not. Yeah. Um, I think I've probably always felt that I know better (laughs) than the teachers so it's either right or wrong i like that whereas when it's up to the teacher's judgment about whether it was good or not i always felt a bit short changed (laughs) yeah it's a weird one that isn't it with that in school particularly but how like we'll we'll come back to your story in a minute but nowadays when you're running your own business Mm -hmm. there's no right or wrong answer is there no how do you find that so i find that great when i'm the boss yeah. <laughs> because the right or wrong answer is as I say it is. Yeah. Um, 
and I mean, I've, I've been like that since I was a child. I've been very, right. very bossy. Okay. Um, so, but I'm, I'm a terrible employee because mm-hmm. I always think that I see the path. And if my boss can't see the path, they're obviously wrong. <laughs> and I think if you talk to anyone that I've worked with, well, worked for yeah. over my life, they will say that I'm, I've been quite a challenging employee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah, it's better that I run my own company, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You're better off there. Yeah. yeah, okay. That's interesting because I, I was the same with, uh, like, when I was doing engineering and everything, I used to think, I like this because there's an answer, yes. you know two and two equals four it's you can't sort of have a different answer and then transitioning into like photography and Mm. video more creative stuff I kind of realized actually I like you I really like this because there's no answer (laughs) there's no right or wrong answer and it is actually my opinion on it but it's uh uh, that's cool I've never heard anyone else sort of uh say that and so yes and but you see you're your own boss as well Mm. so you don't have to let someone else make the judgment about whether your work's okay or not. Yeah, 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 true. That probably helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, so um, so you went to work for Ministry of Defence? Yep. Okay. So was... that was on their management scheme, mm-hmm. which was, you know, absolutely brilliant. They, mm-hmm. they they sort of parachuted us into different posts every six months. Literally? Well, not not literally, <laughs> no. Thank goodness. <laughs> Uh, so, so I mean, it was quite a tough time because yeah. you're always the new person. You mm-hmm. don't know anything about it. You know, your badge does management scheme. It's called the fast stream. Mm-hmm. So you arrive and it's like, oh, it's the fast streamer. And everyone <laughs> hates you and you know nothing about it. So, you, you know, you're on a loser from the start. But it's right, so yeah. interesting because you get six-month bits of all the different places in the Ministry of Defence. Absolutely brilliant. And then you got... So we had... Um, additional courses that we all went on mm-hmm. so there was three weeks learning about land systems three weeks about air and three weeks about the sea mm-hmm. and i also got um a placement with the navy for two months in hong kong as well oh wow so cool. it was it was you know i don't think the ministry of defense got much out of me to be honest <laughs> but i had such an amazing two years training it right, was yeah. really you know amazing and re- really put me in good stead for the rest of my career i think what was your favourite sort of placement in that time? Oh, goodness. Well, I like them all um, because they were all so interesting. So I found... So I had a placement in Whitehall, you know, answering parliamentary questions. Mm-hmm. And I found that the most eye-opening right. in terms of how government works. Right. And it was really exciting because, you know, you would see the ministers around and you'd hear the policies. and you'd, <laughs> You know, you really felt that you were at the heart of... What, how government runs mm-hmm. um, but I was absolutely terrible at it really? <laughs> I was terrible in fact when I finished they said I was the worst person they'd ever had oh, no, really? <laughs> because I was rubbish at answering parliamentary questions right um, because okay. I would just answer the question you ah, know, okay the, no, you can't you do can't that just answer the question <laughs> oh. um, so uh, yeah I was I was not very good at that yeah but the people around me were very very patient with me yeah and really helped me you know understand how how it should be mm-hmm. so i did learn a lot from it i mm-hmm. was and i did enjoy it mm-hmm. but yeah i was the worst <laughs> so the parliamentary questions as in coming from members of parliament or coming from the public well i was in a division where it was any question so members of the public right. or parliament or you know briefing ministers on stuff so i was mm-hmm. kind of the science desk right okay um, okay 
and it was really it was great so i had to one of my jobs was reading the new scientist and mm -hmm. places like that and seeing what letters people had written in um so it, yeah it was it was just really interesting yeah okay so cool lucky. yeah yeah absolutely it sounds like one of those sort of experiences that sets you up for life in a way yes those yes, two years exactly and i was working with people who were so good at you know navigating the politics and the the rest of the government mm. which is certainly not one of my skills mm. so that really <laughs> that really helped so was it during that time that you realized that being an employee was not for you or did that come later um i think during that time i realized i wanted to be in science you know okay. working with scientists right okay um and that was quite an eye-opener for me because before that I thought maybe I could be in policy or, you know, one of the other many, many careers that you could move into. Mm -hmm. But it was there that I realised I wanted to work with scientists and engineers. That's where mm -hmm. I feel most at home. Okay, okay. So what did you, what, what was your next move then after so, those two years? Yeah, so then I had to have a longer placement and right. I went to work in Kinetic. Oh, yeah. And Kinetic had only just been sort of separated off from the Ministry of Defence. So mm -hmm. I wasn't really meant to go to Kinetic. Right. <laughs> um, I was meant to stay, you know, in the Ministry of Defence. Uh, but I specifically went to Kinetic because that's where I felt my home was, mm -hmm. which was the sort of science and engineering bit. Mm -hmm. And then I had a great time in Kinetic. I did. In fact, they let me do my PhD while mm -hmm. I was there. So oh, I was right. Okay. Doing a job and doing a PhD. Oh, cool. Which was really i was really lucky with that and it was really great and then i moved into management um and i was working in the structural material center there mm -hmm. then i had kids so mm -hmm. i took some time off and then when i came back um i was very very lucky they put me in charge of the five meter wind tunnel which right. is at farnborough oh cool which <laughs> is the most amazing place it's yeah. like as big as a cathedral right okay. and you have models of airplanes but they're still massive models yeah and um it's pressurized mm -hmm. and it's just amazing <laughs> and um you people have to test um all commercial airplanes for takeoff and landing mm -hmm. there okay and there's only one other like it in the world which is in france right and so it's amazing and not just that but the team that ran it were probably one of the most amazing teams i've ever worked with because they you know, as well as loving the wind tunnel mm. because it's so unique, most of them had been there since, you know, since they left school. Right. And so they were so knowledgeable and expert. Yeah, yeah. They were amazing. So, you know, here I was running a wind tunnel. I didn't know anything about wind tunnels <laughs> or aeroplanes. <laughs> um, Is this aerodynamic but, testing or structural testing? Uh, aerodynamic testing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, um, but luckily they were, they knew everything. Yeah. So they were fantastic. So I had I had a great couple of years. Yeah, yeah. There. And then I had another kid and then sort of, yeah, moved on. Cool, cool. <laughs> that was a, one of those like things where it's a lot easier to say than... <laughs> you said, you said <laughs> yeah. then I had kids, then I came back. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's not always simple, is it? <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay, cool. So, um, right, so you came back to the wind tunnel after after that or, uh, or you, you moved on yeah i came back to the wind tunnel but only briefly okay and then um my husband got a job in singapore oh uh, yes so we okay. just um packed up and mm -hmm. went off to live in singapore for five years <laughs> excellent <laughs> cool yeah yeah okay yeah and he took us through uh, his 
side of the journey on, on his side of that journey yeah when he came in but um we, were you working out there or were you looking after the kids full time um so it's quite difficult as a partner to get a job mm-hmm. but i was lucky that i did get a job um, right. in marketing oh right okay <laughs> um in the research institute out there and then i moved okay. to running their consultancy um so it was all the materials consultancy that uh that agency was doing mm-hmm. that i was running for a while which was again in materials mm-hmm. so it was materials analysis really right okay so okay. that was really interesting um i found it to be quite a culture shock when i first went over there yeah um because for the first six months i could tell that i was doing something wrong oh, right. i could tell people were offended by me oh really but i had no idea why and um you know after about six well i started uh, making i i joined a group which was, um, well, they were dragon boaters. Mm -hmm. So they were Singapore um, individuals Mm -hmm. in general uh, in a dragon boat team, but they'd all gone, they'd all been educated at Oxford or Cambridge in the UK. Right, okay. So that was really, really great because they understood me because obviously they'd been living in the UK for a while and they understood Singapore. Mm -hmm. And so my friendship with them really helped me understand and of course, it was because I was just being too direct. Oh right, <laughs> okay. everything that I did, yeah, um, was it just it just didn't fit in with the way things were done. So how did you have to adjust then? To well, I mean, I didn't have to adjust. I just well, how did you adjust? I just understood more um, that because of course I was relying on feedback when I was interacting with someone. I was relying on feedback as if they were in the UK. Okay, and so body language, what they said, what they did. Mm-hmm. I relied on that to, to, so that I would then reply in a, an appropriate way. It was all completely different. So right. the body language, I couldn't read anymore, which right. was just weird. I mean, as, a, as an individual, I rely a lot on things like body language okay. um, to help me understand how the other person is feeling. And I felt when I first went to Singapore, I couldn't read the body language. Mm-hmm. And it was like being blind all of a sudden. Right, okay. And... As I said, I could I could see that I was doing the wrong thing, but I had no idea why. <laughs> so it, I was really really lucky. My friendship with the Oxford and Cambridge Dragon Boaters helped me so much. Right. Um, and after spending some time with them, I was able to then you know operate in a in a much much better way and understand what people were thinking and feeling okay. when I was talking to them. So you learnt to kind of interpret their body language. Yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And also, I I learnt about Singapore and you know what the pressures of life are what what you know how it all works mm-hmm. and until you understand that you you can't really you know work effectively with people mm-hmm. so that was really useful right. so it was really strange because our kids were going to the British school mm-hmm. so all our friends made through the children were expats often working in sort of expat environments but we were working on a day-to-day basis with local Singapore people. Right, so okay. we were we were lucky because we got to see both sides of that sort of life in Singapore. Mm-hmm. It was it was great. And I've got loads of Singaporean friends that I'm still in contact with. Yeah, yeah. They're, you know, they're really good friends still. Can, can you think of a kind of specific example of, you know, how body language would be, you know, if you're speaking to someone from Singapore compared um, to someone from the UK? I can't really, I can't no. really think of any 
It's a bit more intuitive, yeah, I suppose. It, oh, the, the problem is I don't really know what I'm seeing. Yeah, I yeah, just think, yeah. oh my goodness, that person's upset or I've yeah. said something wrong. And certainly when I first went to Singapore, I, you know, they seemed like they were okay. Mm-hmm. And then they would say something and, and I would think, oh, not okay. <laughs> they're not okay. <laughs> yeah, so, which would, you know, be a shock. And then it right. made me feel insecure about all my dealings with everybody. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, certainly as a, as a manager, I rely completely on trying to understand how the other person is feeling, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, so that was, yeah, that was quite hard. And the first six months were really difficult when we first went to Singapore. Right. So there was that, and then there was the fact that it was just so hot <laughs> yeah. and so humid. But interestingly, after about six months of being there, suddenly it wasn't didn't feel hot anymore. Right, okay. So strange, almost, you know, almost overnight. Really? So after six, so before six months, you know, just wearing loose <laughs> things and just sweating all the time. After six months, when it was raining and the temperature dropped by about a degree, yeah. I would feel cold. Really? That's how weird it was. <laughs> I would start, you know, I was wearing jeans out and, you know, really? after about six so months. So you had properly adapted within yeah. six months. And then when you came back to the UK, did it, was it kind of the same thing? Do you need six months to warm well, up? Well, I mean, it felt, well, we, felt, we came back to Italy, you see. Oh, yeah, of course. And it was the yeah, time. Yeah. So it was cold. Yeah. And we were living in, like, this little old gatehouse of this big mansion and it was cold (laughs) (laughs) so whether that was me not acclimatizing or whether it was just cold i don't know yeah 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 interesting yeah i did a bit of workout in um in abu dhabi a few times when i was uh, um, doing aerospace and yeah i went out there in the summers and it's just it's crazy isn't it i always say to people how you could be sitting in a restaurant or something and someone leaves the door open and you can just feel the heat coming in. Oh, and yeah. like in this country, you're like, can you shut the door because yeah, it's freezing yeah. over there. It's like, shut the door, it's too hot. Yeah, It's bizarre, isn't it? It is. And it, you know, it took me out of my habit. Before I went there, I would like to lie in the sun in the summer, you know, mm-hmm. like everyone baking on the beaches. You go to Singapore and it's it's just not nice. Yeah, yeah. Sun. So that sort of kicked me of that habit. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think... Uh, I'm interested in this body language mm. thing because I think um, probably more of us could do with using that that skill. Maybe we do it subconsciously, but yeah. it sounds like it's a bit more conscious with the way you're the way you do it. Do you th- is that? Do you think that because you mentioned about having a bit of dyslexia? Do you think that's sort of an adaptation? It could from, be. From I've that. never thought of that. I'm I'm somebody who does everything by gut. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't tend to work out why I'm going to do things <laughs> or whether it's a good idea or not. I have right. a, I have very strong gut feelings and I do it. Okay. And I have very good, strong gut feelings about people. Okay. Um, and that has been how I manage. Mm-hmm. So I, I will talk to somebody and I will get very strong gut feelings about how they're feeling. Okay. And I yeah. will adjust my behavior to that. And I don't right. know how I do it. Yeah. I assume it's through body language, right, but, I, okay. but I don't really know why. And it was only really looking back on the fact that I lost that ability when I first went to Singapore that made me realise it was body language and facial changes and a little bit of what was said as well. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's, I assume, why I lost that ability. And then mm. it became easier as we lived there. Mm. Um, but... 
yeah, it, it was a very it was a very strange sensation. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It's uh, like you say, you, you said like felt like you were blind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah, quite a big a big thing then a big a big way that you yeah see the world. So all these online meetings and everything that we've been doing for the last fifteen months or whatever been hard, I guess. Yeah, I find <laughs> them really hard. Yeah. I think I find them way more tiring than actual meetings, mm-hmm. and you know, as many of us do. And I think that's because you have to focus so much more on the words mm-hmm. because you don't have all those other signs of the body language and the, mm. you know, how someone's sitting and all the other things, I guess, help us, mm. help to inform us how the other person is feeling. You just don't have that. And so it, yeah, I can't wait to have proper <laughs> meetings again. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't understand our clients, how they're feeling. Yeah. You know, if they want us to do something different, it's, that, you know they have to be very specific at the moment right zoom. yeah so yeah it's really hard yeah yeah interesting and there's not enough emojis on zoom really is <laughs> no. there to... <laughs> but also you don't want to know what the other person thinks they're thinking yeah you want to know what they are feeling and yeah. that's often they don't even know yeah, you know, yeah. they start feeling unhappy with what you're saying they, yeah. they probably don't know that until you know they've already signed it by the way yeah. they're sitting or, or the way they're i don't know fiddling with their pen or something. Yeah. Sounds like you've got a book in you about that, I reckon. <laughs> no, <laughs> but the thing people. is, I don't know. I don't know how it, how it works. I just if you could get break it down. Yeah. If you could break it down, though, it'd be quite interesting to uh, a lot yeah. of people, I guess, of how you... I mean, on these personality-type tests, yeah. you get the, the people who make decisions on logic and people who get make decisions on feeling. Mm-hmm. And... I think the people who do the feeling bit are probably people who pick up on, you know, extra messages, even though you don't know how. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, an interesting science. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, so if I recall, you went to Italy and then you came yeah. back to the UK a little bit later. Yeah, that's um, right. And is that when you decided, right, it's time to start my own thing? Well, we, so we ended up in Malvern and I didn't have a job. Uh-huh. Um, and I, by this time I knew I wasn't a very good employee. <laughs> You'd work that out. No. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, I was a material scientist. Yeah. Uh, um, Specialising at that point. So I'm also a professional bandwagon jumper owner. Okay. So I don't... Tell us I, more. So I'm really... So my, my two skills are being bossy and <laughs> like doing the latest craze. Okay. So, um, for example, you know, nanotechnology was a really big thing at one time and and I was like, yeah, I do nanotechnology. And then, I mean, this was in Singapore. <laughs> in Singapore, then they were doing uh, nanobiotechnology, which is nanotechnology in, you know, biology. Okay. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I do as well. <laughs> <laughs> the interface between nano and bio. And with a lot of these buzzwords, you know, it's still just material science. Mm-hmm. But you have this, this little wrapper on it. <laughs> um, and... You know, the, given that I don't really know that much of the science in the first place, I mm-hmm. always rely on experts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always think, well, how hard can it be? Yeah, I'll do that. Um, so because of that, I came to Melbourne and at that point I was badged as a nanotechnology expert. You know? <laughs> um, but that was just exactly when the big financial crash happened. Right, okay. So there was no money to mm-hmm. invest. And of course, anyone doing nanotechnology, you need infrastructure, usually. You need microscopes or factories or, you know, stuff. 
And so the bottom fell out of nanotechnology mm-hmm. world. Um, and, you know, and I was in Malvern quite bored. My, friend, <laughs> my friends in Malvern will tell you that I was like, I was joining the PTA and, you know, <laughs> making everyone suffer with my bossiness because I had nothing, no one else to boss around. Um, so I was looking around for things to do. And then everyone at the local school in West Malvern, you know, I would go for dog walks with them. Every man and his dog were working for cybersecurity companies. And I didn't know, you know, anything about cybersecurity at the time. Um, and of course, it, it's a hotbed of cybersecurity because there's Kinetic there. We're not that far from GCHQ and we're not mm-hmm. that far from Hereford and the regiment. Mm-hmm. And so there's loads of people who do cybersecurity. And I met all these little tiny companies doing it and they didn't know of each other. So this then harked back to the, some of the work I was doing in Singapore about small companies um, commercializing emerging technologies. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I started a cybersecurity group because right. how hard could it be? <laughs> really, you didn't. Ka-ding! Suddenly, our <laughs> cybersecurity. Oh yes. Um, but like most of my jobs and careers, I didn't actually know about cybersecurity, but I knew people who did. Okay. So that's right. been the the premise of all my whole career. Um, yeah, I, le- I rely on the really clever, amazing experts to, right, okay. to do all the clever stuff. So I started this meetup group for mm-hmm. small cybersecurity companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, I've started so many things in my life and most of them fizzle out after mm-hmm. about a month. <laughs> you know, I realize it's not working. Let's forget it. And so this was just one of those amazing things that was the right time, the right place. Right. I started this group. A few people joined and then the BBC heard about us. So right. it's the Malvern Cybersecurity Cluster. And I had um, an email. So at this point, I was searching around for things to do. I was doing little bits and pieces. I had an email from uh, Peter Day, who ran uh, In Business on Radio 4. Okay. And I had a, an email from his producer saying, we've heard about what you're doing. We'd like to come down and do a, a program on you. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So after checking that it wasn't a spam, you know, a phishing email, um, Peter Day and his producer came down and spent two days with us. Right. Just finding out about Malvern cybersecurity stuff. And then that went out on Radio 4. Right. And the World Service. Okay. So suddenly, so we had about, I don't know, 10, 15 companies in the Malvern cybersecurity cluster. Yeah. And it was quite, you know low-key it was all free it was just come and meet up and have a chat suddenly i had companies from all across the uk <laughs> wanting to join because they'd heard about it on radio really? and of course the uk government was like oh this sounds really exciting how can we grow it so it was just right time right place um and then i got some money from the uk government to start up clusters or support clusters all across the UK. Okay. And right. the main reason for it, so I also, I get very on my bandwagon about justice and small companies not being bullied by big companies. <laughs> so the reason about the, the cybersecurity clusters were they were for small cybersecurity companies. Okay. Because back then, cybersecurity was quite difficult to get into if you were a little company. Mm-hmm. So it was dominated by the large players. Mm-hmm. And the small companies had so many barriers to get in there and this was stopping innovation and it was you know stopping growth of the industry so the idea was that all these small companies would have one voice and we would lobby the government and we would bring down the barriers and yeah and they would obviously network and mm-hmm. and 
move on together. So that was that was the plan, and right. that's what we did. Okay, okay. So from from there then, but well, actually no, I've got loads of questions on that. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> when you said like you know that you didn't necessarily know about cybersecurity, but you were interested in it, yeah. I guess, and you you had people who are experts on it. How do you kind of go from that to like you know forming a company so, around cybersecurity? So the company, so the company that I now run, I as me, mm. I met the founders at the cluster meeting. Mm-hmm. So they came along because there was it was it was two two of the founders. They had this idea that they'd built up a little bit with some grant funding, but they had mm. no un, no you know background in commercial commercial companies, so they didn't know what to do next. Okay. So they met me through the cybersecurity cluster. Yeah. And they asked me to give them some advice on the business plan, which I did. And I would say things like, well, who are your competitors? And they would say, oh, we don't have any. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and who is this applicable to? Oh, all small companies. Really? <laughs> and my little opportunity bell was going off. Right. So I kindly offered to help for free. And that was, I don't know six, seven years ago, and here yeah. I am now, the CEO. So you can see I bossily pushed my way in. Um, and that's that's how I did it. So it was their idea. Right, um, okay. And it, okay. Was, it was their expertise. But you had the sort of business and vision side of things, whereas they had the technical yes, expertise. Yeah, exactly. I had, the, I had the vision, but also I had the presumptuousness mm-hmm. to think that, well, of course we should be a global company. You know, no, no, we're not going to do just Worcestershire. We're going to do the UK, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's that kind of attitude that, of course we can do this and we're going to do it big. Thinking, Rather than, big, yeah. I think sometimes organisations think, well, you know, I'll do Worcester. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas it's like, no, don't do Worcester, do the UK. What, what, where do you think that comes from? Do you think, because I'm thinking back to your, you know, first job in the, the Ministry of Defence and then being embedded in Westminster you know do you think that kind of big thinking then comes from that time when you were I think so but also my experience in Singapore okay where Singapore is so good the government there is so good at massive initiatives right you know they say well we need so for example Singapore government a few years ago would say we want to be top in the world in nanotechnology Mm -hmm. and so they would they wouldn't just fund a few research programs. Mm. They build a, a massive building. Mm-hmm. They hire all the top scientists in nanotechnology and they give them, you know, millions and millions of pounds to spend, you know, just in a year. Right. And that's how they do it. Right. So I think seeing how Singapore does that so successfully yeah. really helped me to think, you know, just do it. You can do it. Mm, mm. It's interesting because, yeah, I think like you say, a lot of people struggle with that. I'd probably put myself in that group as well, um, certainly at times. You struggle to sort of think big enough, don't you? And you, yeah. you sort of, yeah, you think locally and, and everything. But it's interesting that you kind of, yeah, learnt that and seen that and just go for it. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> probably it's also something to do with my dyslexia. Oh, right. dyslexic people can see the big picture, okay. but they can't see the detail. Okay, right. So, it, you know, it could be that. Okay. I don't know. But also I get, I get so excited by opportunities. I, I see so many gaps. Mm. You know, you see the market 
Mm. And you see lots of companies competing in some areas and then big areas of just nothingness where mm. something is needed and there isn't anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that it really excites me. So it's yeah. not just the fact that I can pay myself and have a company. It's the fact that it's needed. You know, it mm-hmm. will do a good thing mm-hmm. and people need it. Mm-hmm. So that that's also what I think really excites me yeah yeah okay dyslexia really shouldn't be called dyslexia i don't think should it should be like oh it should be easier to spell different yeah i know yeah <laughs> that's, that's unfortunate that's isn't my it? main thing <laughs> but it should be like yeah it's just different different lexia maybe isn't yeah, it well, all of... the neurodiversity <laughs> so um so yeah so our company got very much into um you know diversity and inclusion particularly with neurodiversity to start with mm. and it's exactly the same with all the things that are banded under neurodiversity, you know, autism, ADHD, you know, all the, all these things means that somebody is absolutely brilliant, usually at one or two things. Mm. And the problems come when you try and slot them into something that is, you know, if you gave me a job that involved looking at detailed stuff, mm. I would be the absolute worst person mm. ever. Mm. But, you know, I've been lucky that I've been able to choose a career where it suits my skills. Yeah. And it's the same with, you know, people who have got Asperger's and, you know, all that. They're, it's just finding the thing that they're really good at. Yeah, yeah. They're not actually, like, bad at things. They're no. just not good at the kind of, the mainstream sort of, this is what you should be doing kind yes. of thing. But find the right channel for them and they're incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You and almost wonder if they need the labels kind of thing because do the labels help or hinder so i think the labels help them understand themselves mm-hmm. because um so my daughter's got asperger's mm-hmm. and until she was 14 and had a diagnosis she thought she was just really stupid right okay you know, she really yeah. thought she was stupid and she was yeah. you know ashamed that she was stupid and she couldn't do what the other people were doing mm-hmm. and when she got a diagnosis it was she found it brilliant because she understood. In fact, um, there's another person that I was working with and he wasn't diagnosed until he was 45 or something. Right. And he said that all his life, it's like being a Mac mm-hmm. and having a Windows handbook. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the Windows handbook says, press this key and this key and this will happen. And it didn't. Yeah. And he felt that there was something wrong with him. Right. And then he got his diagnosis and it's like someone handing you the Apple handbook. <laughs> right. Oh, finally, you know, <laughs> it's not that I'm stupid. It's that I work in this way. Okay, And that yeah. certainly was my daughter's experience that once she realized it's not that she's stupid, it's that mm. her brain works in this way. Mm-hmm. And now she's been able to find the things that she's really good at, mm-hmm. that she's better at than people without okay so the labels are actually enabling rather than anything else yeah it's a question of education it's to help people understand that when you say you've got asperger's it doesn't mean to say you know they have to talk to you like this yeah yeah, you know it means that your work your brain works in a different way yeah and you might need things done in a different way Mm. but it's not because you're not clever it's because you process things differently Mm. I think the the thing that I always sort of uh, struggle with a bit is like, who says that that's different? What about if that's the normal way and we're all yeah. doing it different? Because even the term like different is kind of, it's presumptuous that the way 
maybe the majority of people do it, or not even the majority, I don't know. Yeah. But a group but of people... it's the way our society is set up. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, our society is set up to go into offices, although maybe not anymore, <laughs> it was set up to go into offices and there would be social rules associated mm -hmm. with those offices. So everyone knows that when you go, you know, when you have a tea break, it's only, it's no more than half an hour, mm -hmm. for example. Everyone knows that you would usually, oh, I don't know, you wouldn't wear a bikini, for example, to go into the office. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows so many, so many multitude of different little rules that are mm -hmm. not written down because they're obvious. Cultural norms. Yeah. Yeah. If you, for example, if you're autistic, mm. you don't know those rules. You know, they're right. not obvious. Yeah. And so you might go in dressed completely unacceptably because no one's told you not to because everyone mm. else thinks it's obvious. Mm. You see what I mean? So it, it, when you say different, it's different to the way that society is set up. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, and that's what causes the problems. And then, yeah. of course, people see that they're not doing things in the expected way, and so they tell them off, or they laugh at them, mm. and then this creates a whole history of awful experiences for mm. the person that's different. Mm -hmm. And then they get, you know, anxiety and depression, not because of their differences, but because of the way people are treating them. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of becomes a vicious circle. Yeah, sure. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, right, so... Getting back to the kind of timeline of oh, events, yeah. <laughs> you'd uh, you met this group of people and decided to start something. Yes. What does the beginning of that look like? Because you haven't got any clients, I guess, to start with. No, nope, we don't have any clients. And again, it was luck. I think so many companies are, you know, are successful because of luck. So we started IASME. Mm -hmm. um, which, which, which stands for something? Information Assurance for Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises. Uh -huh. Really gotcha. snappy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was a way of small companies certifying that they had cybersecurity. Okay. Because until then, there was just the international standards. Very expensive and very difficult for a small company to get. Even if the small company is really secure, mm -hmm. it's difficult to get them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no way that a small company could show that they were secure. Mm -hmm. So... It sounds like a good idea, but of course no one cares. Small companies didn't <laughs> care, no one wanted it. But just by chance, the government decided they wanted something that all companies could use to show that they were secure. Okay. And so they ran a call for evidence, and there was 26 standards thrown into the pot, mm -hmm. and we put ours in. Mm -hmm. You know, at this point, there was just two of us working right. it. We didn't get paid. We were just working for free and mm. we had no clients. <laughs> but hey, don't worry about that. We put our standard in and we spent six months, you know, presenting to different trade associations and such like. And at the end, the government said that there wasn't one winner. There was three winners. So um, the international standard was the best known. Um, there's a standard um, by ISF, which was best for very large organizations. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very expensive to even see. Mm -hmm. And then it said the IASME standard was best for small companies. Nice. So we were like, yay, <laughs> this is great. Watch those clients come in. Nothing. <laughs> Nobody still cared. Um, but then the government said, but actually none of them are what we want. You know, typical government. Right. <laughs> they said, actually what we want is something that just says that a company is doing the basics. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this was when the government, probably GCHQ, looked back at all the breaches in their supply chain, they were often 
because the company was not doing the basics, mm-hmm. you know, just keeping software up to date, mm-hmm. just having a password that was like more than five characters, <laughs> those kind of things were why they were being breached. Right. Okay. And when you looked at what the company had, often the company would have had the international standard, uh-huh. but because it didn't go down to that depth, that detail, they still weren't doing the basics or because it was risk-based. So mm-hmm. with a risk-based um, certificate, you, as long as you know the risk, you can accept it and still get the certificate. Right, okay. So you'll be like, well, we've got no passwords on anything, <laughs> and we understand that that's a really bad risk, but we've chosen to accept it. You still right. get the certificate. Right, okay. <laughs> so the government were like, none of that. We just want to know that they are definitely doing these important controls. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to develop this, and because we were one of the three winners of the call for evidence, we got invited to help. Nice. Um, and of course, we were the only small company in the room. So we would be, you know, they would be talking about the computer on the desk in the office. And we would say things like, what about the, per- the sole trader working from, you know, Starbucks with a tablet? Oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> totally could not compute. So, so I think, you know, we helped the development of it. Yeah. And then when it came to be launched, we were asked to be one of the first um, accreditation bodies mm-hmm. to try it out. Okay. So we, we got sort of pulled through, and then the government has mandated it in a lot of their contracts. Right. So that's when small companies started caring. Okay. You know, yeah, that's yeah. when we started getting clients. Mm-hmm. And of course, when we, when we first launched, we had, you know, we had no money, uh, we, we weren't being paid, and we were launching this government scheme. <laughs> we don't know how we did it. And there was an organization in Wales who I'd been talking to about their cyber cluster. And they turned up and they said, well, how are you going to do this? And I was like, oh, I don't know, because we had a month to launch it. And they said, we'll do it all. We'll develop the assessment platform for you completely for free mm-hmm. and just pay us a little bit every time there's a certificate. You know, thank goodness. And they worked round the clock so that we could launch, bless them. They were just a small company. Yeah. Um, and now we certify 2,000 companies a month. Wow. And so we've got lots of clients and the company that, you know, did all that development work for free for us are, are being paid well now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it that all worked out. Kind of how it all worked <laughs> up. It all grew. Right, okay, okay. Wow. So, yeah, so you did a lot of upfront work for free, basically, helping to get everything set up and then that, you know, put you in a good position. Yeah, but I think all to... starting, you know, small startups usually you work for free yeah, to start with. absolutely it's, yeah otherwise you wouldn't get going yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it's good for people at that stage to realize that and remember it isn't it um, yes i know it's it's really hard when you get going and you think you might never you know it, it, it might not work out but yeah. when it does work out it's great yeah 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 okay and now then over the last 12 months you've grown an incredible amount yeah we've <laughs> doubled in size yeah. Um, since lockdown, the first lockdown. Wow. So, of course, that's been challenging, recruiting yeah. people, finding people over this period. <clears throat> um, and in fact, when lockdown, the first lockdown happened and we desperately needed to recruit people. Mm-hmm. So I just recruited people's family on short-term contracts. Right, okay. <laughs> you know, we just needed somebody. We needed a group of people to just work you know, we thought that obviously the pandemic would be over in about three months. Yeah. So I gave them all three month contracts. Um, and of course they would usually be working from home with their other family member. So mm-hmm. they, 
they were able to be trained mm-hmm. <laughs> by the other family member. Um, and I thought three months and then, you know, we'll recruit properly. Yeah. But two things happened. One, that the pandemic didn't go away. Mm. And the second thing was they were brilliant. <laughs> you know, so we just extended their contracts. Right. Okay. So it's turned out that now we obviously we have a lot of family members working here by ASB. And since then we've recruited from all over. Really. Yeah. So we've gone from about, I don't know, about 25 staff to 56, wow. I think, in just over a year. <laughs> so that's been, yeah, quite a big change. It's got its own, own sort of challenges then, I imagine. It has, but it's brilliant, you know. The, yeah. the people who've joined are absolutely brilliant yeah. and very, very supportive of each other. Right. That's kind of a key part of IASME. Because okay. we have so many diverse people mm-hmm. in all ways, mm-hmm. we have a lot of people that, you know, that struggle with anxiety and that but that's understood in mm-hmm. in the team and so people are very understanding of each other and supportive so that's right. brilliant yeah but that's a that's a culture that you've created uh, and you know it comes from the top top down i guess doesn't it well it is <laughs> but it's not i mean it's not just to be nice no no we have you know we've never really struggled with recruitment mm-hmm. unlike other companies that have struggled to to bring people on mm. we've always found people to join us mm-hmm. because of that environment mm-hmm. um, but also I know from you know my, my daughter's experience that some of the best cleverest talented people also have issues with anxiety and neurodiversities mm-hmm. and if you don't support them you mm-hmm. don't get them mm-hmm. so you're missing out on a massive pool of talent mm-hmm. so okay. by putting things in place to support people with neurodiversities and mm-hmm. people with anxiety, you know, we get the best people. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's not, although it's a lovely culture, I, it's not in place necessarily to be nice. It's yeah. in place because we get the best people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And so can I ask you about those kind of support systems yeah. for people with neurodiversity? I mean, what, what does that actually look like? So we have a full-time person, well, she's four days a week, um, who does just support okay so she has a history as um, a teacher but also she's done qualifications in autism Mm -hmm. and she supports so to start with she was just going to support our neurodiverse members of the team Mm -hmm. Um, but then we realized that lots of people need support particularly Mm -hmm. over the pandemic Mm -hmm. and so if any of our team are particularly in need of support they they she just calls them they talk it through so that's really helpful. Oh, but bro. also very importantly, she is the independent person. She's not their boss. Mm-hmm. So they can talk to her about things that they wouldn't want to talk to their boss about. Mm-hmm. And then she can talk to the boss. Mm-hmm. And she can say, you know, this person needs, you know, different lighting or a different laptop or something. Mm-hmm. And it's really important. And you need to prioritize it. Right. Okay. So because she has that authority mm-hmm. she can make it happen and that's really important i think right okay but you don't right, want to cool. be saying some of the stuff to the boss yeah sure, um, sure so we have that we have uh i don't know i think we have so um we have a weekly all-staff meeting on teams obviously at the moment mm-hmm. um and every few weeks that is a session by somebody who does relaxation or anxiety control mm-hmm. so we've had these amazing speakers who've done a session about right. how to control your anxiety how to 
feel positive, how to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a while over lockdown, we had an online kind of exercise class <laughs> that everyone was invited to. Um, you know, just all these different things. And of course, in the office, there is, we try and put in as many things as possible to make it, to reduce the barriers. Mm-hmm. So we have more staff policies, obviously, than many companies, because we try and be specific. Right. You know, okay. we're not just going to have unwritten rules. We'll write them down. Yeah. Um, and in fact, our team are just in the midst of writing a how to be at work guide. Okay. Which sounds silly, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> you just go in and you're at work. But it includes all the unwritten assumptions and rules. And, and particularly in the team's environment, you know, the, the Zoom teams mm-hmm. type stuff. So just little things like when you're working all remotely, you need to be able to show that you're there. Mm-hmm. So if you just quietly work away and have no interactions all day, mm. people will wonder what you're doing. Yeah. Whereas if you just occasionally, because we have um, online messaging all the time, mm-hmm. you know, you like a few things or you comment occasionally, mm-hmm. it helps people understand that you're there and you're engaged. Right, yeah, so yeah. there's zillions of just unwritten rules that, that affect how people at work see you mm-hmm. that you might not know. Mm-hmm. So or just trying to have awareness of all those things and trying to make it more specific rather mm-hmm. than just assuming everyone knows. Yeah, right, okay. Interesting. <laughs> okay. And then on a sort of like a slightly separate topic to that, just out of interest, like, because I find pricing is something that, you know, all businesses struggle with oh, yeah. somehow. And um, when you have like a bigger business like that and you have, you know, great things in place like, like the, the, the lady doing the support and, you know, writing all these policies and everything, it's kind of... I guess, would you call it unbillable hours or something? Yeah, yeah. How do you, like, work out your pricing for all your products and everything and services to include enough budget for yeah. all of these things? So I'm really bad at that. Oh, know, yeah. I'm absolutely <laughs> awful at that. And I'm, I'm awful at budgeting, actually. I'm trying to budget <laughs> at the moment. And I'm very bad at imagining what might be. Okay. You know, again, ideally in actuals. Okay. So I know what projects we've definitely got, and yeah. that's what I budget for. Mm. And people say, but every year extra work comes in, Emma. I'm like, well, I know, <laughs> but it might not this year. You know, so I can't. I can't. So um, our financial director just you know, tears his hair out with me because he's trying to make me budget properly, and I'm just like, well, I don't know that's not coming in. So I right. find it really, really hard. Okay. And, um, and in terms of pricing, mm. it's difficult because... The Cyber Essentials price of £300 a pop mm. was just based on me thinking, well, I'm a small company, how much would I pay? Right. That's it. <laughs> you know, and in fact, when we launched and we said £300 a pop, our competitors were going to go in higher. Right. And they, you know, and even some of our friends would contact me and say, you know, you, you can't do it for £300. Right. Just, you'll make a loss. Yeah. And we would have made a loss for the first few years if we'd have paid ourselves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. but we had an advantage that we were not paying salaries. Ah. <laughs> um, but it's a volume, it's a volume thing. So okay. the way we structured our company was over a certain amount of volume, it becomes profit. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, I, I've done it all by gut. Mm-hmm. And if I had had to have written a plan of, 
we're going to charge 300 pounds and we're going to bring in all these people and you know it wouldn't have worked at all yeah it would have nobody would have signed it off yeah so it was it was a gamble mm-hmm. and now with the volumes that we're doing we're you know we're doing really well mm. and we can afford i think it's you know we're doing well there's no sign that it's going down significantly mm-hmm. so i know what the profit is mm-hmm. so we can afford to invest mm-hmm. in staff okay. yeah. and then when you invest in staff you become a better company and you are more successful mm-hmm. but um so when we first employed the person to support the neurodiverse people mm. we also offered 14 unemployed neurodiverse staff a job right okay. on the basis of nothing you know <laughs> so there'd been we did some training for unemployed neurodiverse adults in yeah. cybersecurity and we offered the first cohort completely the first cohort um 14 of them a job with IASME. right to do that i knew how much profit we'd made the previous year mm. and i went to the shareholders and i mm. said i'd like you to approve me investing you know thousands or just in doing this mm. to employ these people it might bring us nothing in the future um but i'd like to do that Mm. and they agreed and that was purely because I'm very very lucky to have shareholders who are not in it for the money mm-hmm. you know the shareholders they started at the company because they wanted to help small companies yeah not because they saw it as an income generation mm. Mm. and so and a lot of them have had either are neurodiverse or have had neurodiverse kids mm-hmm. or have been affected by neurodiversity mm. and so they completely agreed so this is money mm. that would go in their pockets and they've said no reinvest it in the company employ your 14 unemployed neurodiverse people yeah and hire a support person right so i was able to do it because i'd known that we'd made you know x amount of profit the year before yeah okay and then luckily okay. because we're still making an excess um we can do more of the same yeah but only because i've got shareholders that are not asking for their div- dividend yeah 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 <laughs> luckily but I think you should take more credit for that than just saying it's luck, though. Because <laughs> well, you said you're lucky that you've got these shareholders, but I think you've probably got the shareholders because, you know, of the way you're running things and well, the way you've wanted the to do that things. I joined, you see? Yeah, so they but were you've, the ones you've attracted them, me. you know, you've all been attracted to each other and built this thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's not just luck. That's because of, you know, being a nice person. Well... <laughs> Yes, it's probably because we're all different. Yeah, yeah. But, and also, it's what makes you feel good. Isn't yeah. It? So some people, and you can't decide what makes you feel good, it's just mm. built into you. Yeah. Some people feel good when they get some money. Mm-hmm. Other people feel good when they have an effect on mm-hmm. something. And for me and the other shareholders, when we have a positive positive impact on individuals, mm. you know, we get a happy feeling. That's mm-hmm. kind of a reward. And it's just as much a reward as if someone is feels happy when they get money and they get money. Mm. So it's, you know, it's it's to make ourselves feel good in a way. You know, that's mm. the reward we get. Mm-hmm. And certainly, seeing some of the previously unemployed neurodiverse people mm. who have come and now have amazing cybersecurity jobs. Yeah, quite a lot of them have moved away from IASME and they work for another organisation called E2E. They are in well-paid you know, fantastic careers mm-hmm. now. And, you know, some of them were homeless. Mm-hmm. Some of the, all of them were unemployed mm-hmm. because of the barriers that they faced because they were neurodiverse. Mm. 
Mm. And now they're able to, their skills are able to shine through. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic to see yeah. that. And when you see the difference to that individual's life, it's mm. revolutionary to that. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a good feeling. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And then I think the sort of monetary rewards take care of themselves, really, don't they, when you leave well, with that? Well, maybe. Maybe. In, <laughs> in years to come. But you, yeah, I mean... I mean, that's I, good too. Yeah, yeah. But, but I've always felt that if you try and do the right thing, you will get your reward. And I know that's mm -hmm. not always the case. Mm. But um, I was talking to somebody the other day who was very, very experienced in this. And they said, you find happy... If you try and pursue happiness it's almost impossible to get. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you try and pursue the right thing, mm -hmm. you try and do the right thing mm -hmm. and follow your ethics, mm -hmm. you often then find happiness, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't always necessarily look like you will. Mm. And certainly for me, that's been the case that I have, I feel that I'm in a good place now um, because I've done what I feel is right. I mean, mm -hmm. otherwise I, I would feel bad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, well, we've just come up to an hour. Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. Um, people can come find you at iasme.co.uk yep. and they can order a uh, a Cyber Essentials... Certificate. What do you call it? Yep. Certificate. And lots of guidance <laughs> as well. Lots yeah. of guidance, particularly for schools, on okay. our website about how to be more secure. Okay, excellent. That sounds good. And you're on the LinkedIn at Iasmi. Yeah. And you're on the Twitter at Iasmi1. Yes. That's Someone right. took Iasmi, did they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Damn it. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Okay, well, um, yeah, no, thank you very much again for coming in and doing this. You're welcome. Appreciate the time. It's extremely interesting and uh, I love chats like that because you never really know where they're going to go. No. Uh, <laughs> what you're going <laughs> to exactly. end up on. So, no, thank you very much for your time and um, we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. You can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at danbarkerstudios.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region. Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.